Well, I know um, Pastor Jim, even though he's tired and been working a lot, he probably can get up here and, and preach just fine, um, probably better than I could, but um, just such a, a man of God, and I appreciate all the opportunities, and it's really, um, it's humbling to get in front of you, and like he said, last week's message on concession was really, really powerful, so if you didn't hear it, I would suggest going to the website and listening to that, um, and just a brief recap, I'm not going to preach his message again, but um, it was pertaining to in the book of, of Mark and with marriage and how God had ordained marriage to be sanctified, and he didn't want to create divorce, but he conceded in doing so, and even Pastor Jim said he hadn't seen that before in that message, and then so this week I started going through, and you know, you see it all throughout the Bible that God concedes, and we think, well, God's all-powerful. Why would he need to concede to anything, you know? He could just say, this is how it is, and you better do it, and we would have to do it. But I think it just shows the heart of God and how he is so in love with us, so patient, and even though he knows what we need to do, um, he still concedes at times. And I think it's ironic, you know, if you've been a husband for any period of time, and you you know, you want to stay married, you're going to concede to your wife every now and then, right? Um, If you're going to be, have a happy wife, happy life, as they say, and all my men said amen. Um, and also, you know, you look at the, I saw telling Jim before the service, you know, the, the Zadok priesthood, if you don't know about that in the book of Ezekiel, you know, God gives pastors to people after their own heart, their wicked desires, but then he also had a, a priesthood set apart, the Zadok priesthood, which was people and priests that sought God first, not just people. So even in pastor, with pastors, God concedes. And so you see it through all, throughout the whole Bible. Um, but so if you didn't get to hear it, I suggest go and listen to it. It was, it was really good. But before I get started, let's just open up a prayer. <sighs> Heavenly Father, um, you know our weaknesses. You know our struggles. You know everything before it even happens. And even when you concede, God, you love us. And even when we don't understand the things of this world, we know you are working. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit today be in this place be in us, overflow from within us, and let your words come from my mouth. Let your heart be what I say today, not my own words. Um, and we just thank you for the opportunity to get to meet together. We ask that you be with each and every one of us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this week, if you don't know, I live in between Burnet and Lampasas, and I have about 15 acres, which is really nice. And so I try to, you know, walk around. I'll try to find a place to pray. And, you know, you look for this ideal spot where you want to pray, you know, like you see in, like on, in pictures where there's like a big boulder, you know, and the, the light's shining down perfect, and there's probably a deer sitting over here, you know. You look for a, a perfect spot to pray. Well, I didn't find it, and I don't think many people will. But I found a pretty good spot. Well, it was about Wednesday, and then I, you know, God's just funny sometimes. He just likes to play jokes on you. And so um, I'm sitting there about two minutes, and it starts to rain. Like, all right, God, you know, I'm going to go in. I don't want to get wet. You know, find an excuse to, you know, just go in. And so as I walk around the, this little cedar tree, there's an umbrella sitting right there, a little pink umbrella with rainbows on it. And it's like, is this your idea of a joke? You want me to pray so I don't get wet? All right. So I pick it up, and then ironically enough, it stops raining. So God just wanted to see me hold a pink umbrella, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but it, he does have a sense of humor, and I find him doing that more times than not just finding weird instances where I just, I just laugh at myself. But the scripture I want to talk about today is that Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. And so um, if you have your Bibles with you, 
We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 10, 9. And I'm going to stay in Corinthians. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but just be patient with me. I'm going somewhere. And so what I'm going to, what this scripture is going to be about is Paul addressing the fact that he's criticized, that he's timid from afar, but, or he's, he's bold afar, but when he's in person that he's timid. And so uh, this is addressed to those who think that he is acting from human motive. And so 2 Corinthians 10.9, it says, I am not trying to frighten, I am not trying to frighten you by my letters. For some say... Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person he is weak and his speeches are worthless. The people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be just as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as, they, as these other men who tell you how important they are. They are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. We will not boast about the things done outside of the area of authority. We will boast only about what has happened within the boundaries of the work of God has given us, which includes our working with you. And basically, all this scripture could be summarized, and I think the last two verses of chapter, or verse 17 and 18, where it says, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. For when people commend themselves, it doesn't count for much. The important thing is for the Lord to commend them. And now it's natural, you know, to have a sense of accomplishment. We want to achieve great things and take credit for our financial well-being and and everything we've done. I think every person has that um, human inclination to want to do that. But I think how we look at it, we need to be careful because, you know, there are very holy, are people who spent a lot of time with God, who had very short lives, hard lives, terrible lives. They didn't live long periods of time, but yet they, they were with God and they had a, maybe a bigger impact on, on God's kingdom than some men who live a long time, who have big influence, but are, are wicked and hard and don't know God. And so we have to be careful when we say... Um, that based on where our, our situation is, that it's us because it is not. Um, and then, and I'm not just talking about Christ. You know, Christ only lived to about 33 years old. But there's many men in the Bible and in, throughout history that lived short lives for, for Christ. And so it's not about how long you live, but it's about what you do with the time you have. Um, you know, I was thinking back to my college days and there's a statistic that says 50% of the world's population lives on less than a dollar a day. And I was like, 50%? Really? That's a high number. I don't know if that's true. But when you start looking at it, you know, you have Africa, which is a huge continent. There's just a third world country, a lot of poverty. They don't have anything. And you have places like India, where it's not a huge continent, but it, it has a lot of poverty on it. And so when you start to look at it, it makes sense that of the world's population lives on less than a dollar a day. And you could have just as easily, God could have placed you there and used you, but yet he placed you here for a purpose. And so we we must be careful saying that I'm here because I'm this good and righteous person, because you're not. And so... uh, 
like I said, we just have to be careful of that. And, you know, recently I heard an awesome message from a, a, a pastor from the early 1900s called Richard Warmbrand. I don't know if you ever heard of Richard Warmbrand, but he was a Romanian pastor in the early 1900s. And when communism came in, it took over the country of Romania. And what it did was it took all the people, just like communism does, that had anything to do with religion, whether it's priests, monks, you know, Christians, they took them all up and they would put them in these internment camps. And so in these internment camps, you know, they would pretty much try to brainwash you into not believing whatever faith you were. And so for Richard Warmbrand, he said for about, he was in, in this internment camp for 14 years. Okay, and he was beaten so severely that when he preached, he, he sat up in a chair. He couldn't stand for long periods of time, and he would have to have his shoes off because if he wore shoes for too long, his feet would start to swell and hurt. And, and so he it was just tortured. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. You know, he was separated from his wife, and he was 30 feet below ground in a cell, and he said the only colors he saw for 14 years was black and the gray colors that he saw of his uniform. That was it. But for 17 hours a day for 14 years, they would make you sit in a chair, and you couldn't lean, you couldn't go to sleep or anything, and they would play uh, over the speaker, Christianity is dead, Christianity is dead, Christianity is dead, no one loves you, no one loves you, give up, give up, give up. And they would replay that over and over and over again for 17 hours of the day. And he said even when he would fall asleep sometimes, he would still be replaying these things in his head. And it's just remarkable some of the stuff that they, they had suffered. Um, and so through his brainwashing, you know, he said that the one thing they wanted more than anything else was to take part in communion because, yeah, they were starved, they didn't eat very much, but what he, him and his fellow comrades desired more than anything else was just to take communion, and they couldn't even do that. Like, all they longed for was communion. And they would be, if they said anything about Christianity, they would be beaten on the spot. Uh, and so one night, through Morse code in these little cells, they would be sitting there, and they would communicate through Morse code, you know, through tapping. And... Uh, they said, well, how can we, you know, take this communion? We want to take Holy Communion. We cannot do it. We have nothing. We really have, you know, no scripture, no Bible, no anything. We're just in this cell. We don't have nothing, but we want to partake in Holy Communion. And so he said he started to think, you know, well, what do you do with nothing? And he said when he thought about it, you know, the whole world, the whole universe was created out of what? Out of nothing. So nothing can be a very valuable resource, he said. You know, if you have nothing, it can be whatever you need it to be. And so with nothing, they all, through Morse code, communicated. And at the same time, they took the cup of nothing, and they took communion. And with the, the bread of nothing, they broke it, and they took co- communion that way. And they said they felt the Holy Spirit. But, you know, that was just one instance that he had there. Another time, he said he was in a really low place. You know, he's been there for years and years and years hadn't seen his wife. They told his wife that he had hung himself, so she didn't know if he was alive or not. And uh, he was in a really low place, and he said, God, I have nobody. I don't have a brother to talk to. I don't have a sister. I don't have family. I don't have friends. I can speak to no one. I'm just in this cell all alone. 
And he said, would you speak to me? You know, you, he said, you've spoken to very even wicked people throughout the course of history. You know, Saul of Tarsus, God spoke to him, and he was persecuting Christians. He said, so God, would you speak to me? And so he was hoping maybe God would give him a, a word of inspiration or a word that would keep, encourage his faith. But he said what God proposed to him was a question. It was an interesting question. He said the one thing that God said to him in this time was, what is your name? He said that's a very weird question for God to ask because if he is God and he is all-knowing, of course he knows who I am. But he remembered that God has asked questions like this before. If you remember with Adam and Eve, at the beginning he said, where are you? Obviously he knew where Adam was, but he still asked that question. And so as he thought of how he was going to respond to this question, he said, uh, well, what should I say? Should I say my name is Richard? But then he remembered in church history that there was St. Richard, which was arrested for being a Christian, took into the stake, was happy to die for Christ. And before he got hung, he noticed the executioner was messing up with the rope and he couldn't get it straightened out. And him being a farmer, whenever he said, can I help you with, with the noose? You know, can I help you fix it? And the executioner allowed him to do so. And so he said, I'm sorry I caused you so much trouble. Uh, you know, thank you for being so kind and generous. I'm happy to go to the Lord. And with a smile, St. Richard, as they called him, was executed and died. And he said, I can't say my name is Richard because he might say, well, were you like that, Richard? And he says, well, maybe I should say I'm a Christian. But he remembered that the Christians in the early church, that the persecution they faced and the hardships they faced, he says, I can't say I'm a Christian. Well, maybe I should say I'm a pastor. But he knows that a pastor was supposed to watch over his flock night and day, and he had not done so. And so he said, how should I respond to this question that, that Christ had presented to me? And so he bowed his head and he said, I have no name. Let me bear your name. And so just, and he actually eventually gets out. And some of the, the if you haven't read the book, I suggest you read it, but it, uh, it ta- it's entitled Tortured for Christ. And some of the, here's just a few of the quotes that are in that book that I'm going to give you. And it says, it is strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. And then how about this one? My wife and I were present at this Congress. Sabina told me, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you lose your husband. And she replied, I do not wish to be married to a coward. Some courageous stuff there. And I draw inspiration from these people. You know, I've, I've recently found a lot of uh, motivation and, and uh, encouragement to pursue Christ by the lives of people that have gone before us. And so, but even Richard himself said, God will not judge us according to how much we endure, but how much we could love. So it's not about how hard of a life you have, but it's about how much you can love those around you. I, I promise you I'll get more crowns in my jewel, or more jewels in my crown from 
the way I live towards others than ever preaching a message. And so, no matter what we endure, what we are blessed with, remind ourselves to set our minds on heavenly things and not on ourselves. And I think that's one of the characteristics that we see throughout the New Testament is people who are not focused on themselves and how I can better um, be successful, but how can I help God out more? How can I be more successful to Him no matter what the cost is? And so, if you would, uh, the next uh, scripture I want you to turn to is 2 Corinthians 12, 6, the same book, just a little bit further up. And it says, If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so, because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it, because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you have made me act like a fool, you ought, and this is the beginning of the next uh, chapter. I just want to read this quick verse because it says a lot. It says, you have made me to act like a fool. You ought to be writing condemnations for me, for I am not at all inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing at all. And so we see that even Apostle Paul, who had done great work for Christ, knew that he was nothing compared to those other apostles. That even though God had used him and given him such great blessings, that he was nothing. He says, even though I am nothing at all. But even uh, another interesting fact is, is that God puts certain thorns in your life to keep you humble. Right? I mean, a lot of times we think that we're just going to pray and pray and pray and it's going to be removed from us. And many times it is. But there are certain times God puts things in your life that are hard, that are uncomfortable, that are just there to keep you humble and know that it's not you, that it's him. Another um, person you probably have heard of is David Brannard, which um, in the early 1700s, he was given the, the mission or the calling to go teach the Native Americans. And so the early age of like 27, he goes and he only reaches about two tribes before he has succumbed to tuberculosis. So he didn't have a long ministry. He was in his early 20s. He just re re like reached a couple of tribes and sitting there writing in his journal about how uncomfortable, most painful thing he's ever experienced, shriveling up, dying, but continuing to pray, continuing to believe in God. And don't you know that out of that journal, many people after his life would go and reach many people in countries. Um, I don't have their names written down, but there was hundreds of people that were motivated to go and preach to other countries based off of the work he did in his 29 years of, of life. So when I say it doesn't matter how, how long you live, it matters what you do with the time you are given. 
And you don't need much to be part of the kingdom, just a humble, loving, and hungry for God. And, you know, a big crowd doesn't mean success. Like I, I mentioned there with David Brannard and with the other people I've talked about, um, they didn't have big crowds. And if you've never, and this is one message, if you've never heard it, I suggest you go get it on podcasts or just find it on YouTube. But David's, David Wilkerson's message about full-time ministry, maybe many of you have heard that, but such a powerful message. And he talks about the life of John, and John was sentenced for his faith to the island of Patmos. If you read the book of Revelations that, that John wrote, it was all revealed to him through this time on the island of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, he wasn't sent there for a vacation. He was sent there to die. He was going to die there. He was going to starve there. There's nothing there. It's just a barren land. And David Wilkerson, he talks about how the first thing he does is he sets up church and he preaches to himself and he ministers unto God. And by every standard of man, he's a failure. He has no congregation. He has no Bible, maybe a, a few books of the Old Testament, he has nothing, and so we would look at that today and say, he's failed. He's, he can't, he's not doing what he's supposed to. He has nobody he's preaching to. But we're not called to just have big crowds. When we look at the life of Christ, he had 12 apostles, and there was a time where 5,000 came to him, and he didn't bring them along with him. He said, these are my men. Those people are just here. We feed them. We show them God, but they don't follow him forever. And so it's not the, the crowd that determines success. You can have nothing and still be commended by God. And, you know, Pastor Jim talked about this last week where, you know, the Facebook post where it says, get all the negative people out of your life, you know. And where that stems from is there's a study that they do is where you become most like the five people that you're around. So they say, you know, put yourself around really successful people, you'll become more successful. And while that is true, the heart of it is wrong. Because if you know that by being around someone who is struggling, that you bec they become more like you, wouldn't you want to go to them and make them more be where you're at? And you say, well, if I'm around them, then I'm going to become more like them. But the person that you're supposed to spend the most time with is who? Jesus. And so if you're spending all this time with Jesus, you're becoming more like him. Then you go reach the lost and they become more like you. And so while it is true, the heart of it is wrong. We're supposed to spend time with Jesus, supposed to spend time with God. That's what Christ did. He spent time in prayer. He spent time with God and by himself. But then there was times he went to his apostles and, and to lost people, and he brought them up to where he was because he sp spent time around them. So while it is true, just remind yourself that we are called to the lost, and we are called to, to know Christ. And in doing so, that's how we get people to be more like him. Because what good would it do if I just go and find billionaires and really successful people and stay around them the whole time while all these people and the rest of the civilization is just dying? That doesn't do any good. Because it's not about you. 
that's where we lose it is we think it's about us. It's about his kingdom. It's about him. And if we take us out of it, we realize what our purpose is. We find our meaning. And so while we are nothing, God highly values you. So we have no meaning besides that to serve God. You know what God calls us now? He calls us beloved. He calls us his righteousness. He calls us the saints of God. How many of you feel like a saint of God? But that's what he calls us, even though we are wicked at heart. It shows how he views us, that those who are called according to his purpose, he has a way of viewing them that brings them back to him, that he values you, even though we are nothing. And, if, and since we are nothing, everything that God has done is by His Spirit. And if God created the universe out of nothing and made us, then He is going to finish the work He started in you. Amen? And so my prayer here today is that we remind ourselves while we are nothing while we don't need much, while our success is not determined in a building, in a pulpit, or how many people we are around, it's determined by our individual relationship with God and our hunger for Him. And so what I want to do is something a little different here. Um, I just want us to spend about 30 seconds in prayer, and if there's anybody that has you know, something that's really heavy on their heart that they want to pray for, someone they want to pray for, I encourage you just to go over there and, and lay a hand on them. But, uh, and then as worship comes up here in a little bit, that's another opportunity to pray. We have to be careful of how we, Jim was talking to me earlier, you know, we have a set way of we want to do church this way. We can do it different or we can follow the same model. I mean, both can lead to success in the, depending on the standard of which is set before them. But we have to be careful of saying we're just going to do church like this because that's how we've always done church. There's no leading of the Holy Spirit that way. There's no changing of lives. It's just clockwork. I'm going to come in. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to sing some songs. I'm going to listen to the pastor. I'm going to take a few notes, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to do everything like I've been doing it. And so it starts with the hunger and being willing, to, being willing to be led by the Holy Spirit to do things differently, not just for the sake of doing them differently, but so that He can be in control, that He can change our lives. And so let us just pray for this next 30 seconds, and then the worship team will come up, and Jim will come up, and we'll have more time to pray. Because I think we can get more value out of praying here than you can get out of listening to me today. That more heart-changing stuff is done through prayer than a message. And so let us pray.